Welcome to this third session on the TBI seminar on racial harmony. What you're sitting in is a, a seminar in the making and not a seminar completed. My, my prayer is that in the seven or eight Wednesday night sessions that we'll give to this spaced out at odd places over the winter and spring, we'll come together a, a unified way of presenting this material on a weekend or on a five or six Wednesday night in the future so that it can be a continuing offering in the TBI curriculum. So I'm learning as I go and you're helping me. So that's what it is. And this is the third time we've been on it. And let me try to uh, first pray and then summarize where we've been and, and a little bit where I'll be where I think I'll be going. But let's ask God to come and help us now. Father, this issue, as we saw on Sunday, is very, very important to you. Your son was poured out until death in order that he might purchase from every tribe and tongue and people and nation people for himself, a bride, a priesthood, and a kingdom. And it was the every people and the every tribe and the every tongue that was so important. And so you are very much committed to diversity in your redeemed people. And so as we talk about the implications of that and think about the reality of race, I pray for guidance, I pray for wisdom, I pray for humility, I pray for protection from not only misunderstanding but misuse. And I pray that there would be a heart that corresponds to a right head on this. And I pray that the effect on our church would be dramatic as a witness in the community. And I pray that the spillover for the culture, the city, the nation, and the nations would be big. So, Lord, we know this is a little teeny group of people here, and we're not at all unbelieving that the five loaves and the two fish can't come true here. And that when you take a, a group of people or truth that is small in its present form and breathe on it or bless it, it can become very big, very significant. And so I ask that you cause the ripple effect that goes out from this time together tonight to be more than any of us could think to ask or imagine for the glory of Christ and for the good of people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Ken. Wow. Appreciate it. Where we have been so far is the first night I talked about why we're doing this and gave you eight or nine Reasons, some from the Bible, some from culture, some from history, some from our personal experience, my personal experience growing up in Greenville, South Carolina. The second time we were together, we talked about all human beings being created in the image of God and the implication that has. Now, a, a corollary of that is to maintain the unity of the race. The race. Humans. 
All humans are of one divine, one origin by divine design. So I want to talk about that tonight. Subtitle, The Meaning and Significance of Race. We'll take most of it from the Bible, but I want to take some from genetics and, and, uh, anthropological observation. So I think I have about five or six points. Now let's just walk through them one at a time and I'll see if there are questions along the way. My first observation is that evolutionary theory of human origins encourages racist thinking about human groups. So what I mean by evolutionary theory of human origins is the theory that we're being we're becoming human from lower life forms which were not human and then something happened and there was a glitch or mutation and um, a more advanced stage of animal life developed a little more brain or something and and, and we're getting close to Human, homo sapiens, and, and then something else happens a few more thousand years or a million years and, and you get higher and finally we arrive on the scene and our ancestors are, are, are monkeys and lower forms of life. Now you, it only takes a little bit of thought to see where that might lead as you look around at forms of human life and start to draw conclusions, well, maybe they're not quite as far along the, the chain as more smart forms. You, you can see where this kind of thing might lead. Well, in fact, Jay Gould, who's not a Christian and no friend of creationism, uh, wrote, Biological arguments for racism, racism in his context meaning that race is the significant definer of traits of intelligence and morality and personality and so on. Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, that is before Darwin, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory couple of examples. Um, this, is 19, this is a quote from a 1924 newspaper. The Australian Aborigines, for instance, were considered the missing links between an ape-like ancestor and the rest of mankind. When the Aborigines were first found or became public in the West, they didn't look like any other race. In fact, the Aboriginal, the Australian Aborigines are classified as a fourth kind. We'll talk about these in a minute, but Caucasoid, Negroid, Mongoloid, and then the Aboriginal are a fourth category. And the evolutionists got all excited about this because look, you can tell by facial features that they're, they're between monkeys and Negroid. Well, this is incredibly demeaning. I mean, right, as I, as I, I don't read much about what's going on in Australia, but I, 
I, I get a little bit of, of feedback, and there is, I would say, with regard to the Aborigines in Australia, compared to America, they're like maybe 30, 40, 50 years behind in the, in the way things are moving. And they'll go through some of the same crises we have and are still in. But that's, that's what a, an evolutionary mind is looking for. We're looking for life forms that can explain the, the link between apes and us. And this is just incredibly volatile. And so I, I am so glad we have a Bible that gives God's perspective on the history of humankind and does not relate it to lower life forms which we are progressively growing out of such that one form of human life might be a little more down the line on the evolutionary chain. Racist attitudes fueled by evolutionary thinking, this is a quote from a little book I've been reading, Racist attitudes fueled by evolutionary thinking were largely responsible for an African pygmy actually being displayed along with an orangutan in a cage in the Bronx Zoo. So, my first observation is to just uh, lift up a warning flag if you are inclined to think uh, in terms of the evolutionary theory of human origins, you might be buying into something that not only for biblical, scientific, but also for racist reasons is not something you'd want to pursue. Second observation. In the Bible, the correlation of Adam and Christ as the heads of two humanities, one physical, one spiritual, points to the unity of the human race. So I want to just point to three passages of Scripture and show you how the inspired Apostle Paul conceives of the human race in relationship to its origin in Adam and in its redemption in Jesus. Well, we spent a long time on this one on Sunday mornings. Romans 5, I just want to pick out a few key verses of that paragraph so that you can remind yourself of the structure of Paul's thinking. Paul said, Romans 5, 12 following, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So one man, sin comes to all humanity. Not separate little humanoids in different places coming along, some of whom make it, some don't, and uh, somehow sin jumps over, but rather one unified humanity and sin rooted in it in ways that are mysterious to us, taking us to where we are now. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression, but if by the transgression of the one the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift of that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. So, the one man, sin and many die, and the one man, Jesus Christ. So you, you begin to sense the structure. We had one man, he sinned, all 
who were in him fell in him so that every human today is a sinner by nature because of our common rootage in our forefather Adam. Now, the solution to that is another Adam, Jesus. We'll see this developed. So that in him, by faith in him, his righteousness becomes ours as Adam's sin became ours. There's an imputation there and an imputation here. So you may remember some of those sermons. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, there's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive, there's faith, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So you have one at the beginning of the human race and one at the beginning of the Christian and if I put, if I said race, I'd have to put it in quotes. The Christian humanity, not that we're superior humans, but that there is a, a new head Christ and a new people, Christianity, and our righteousness is not our own. It belongs to Jesus, like our sin at the beginning was not our own, but it belonged to Adam, and we were contaminated by it and inherited it, and now Christ's we inherit. So our salvation is in Christ, just like our fall was in Adam. The structure, all I want you to see here, I'm not re-preaching all the details, it's the structure of humanity that I want you to see, that the apostle who is God, has, has the mind of Christ, didn't think in this, uh, in a way that is evolutionary. Man comes on the scene as a responsible being, and from him flows sin, and then follows one man. For as through the one, the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So there's Romans 5 and a structure of two atoms, as it were, which is said explicitly later now in 1 Corinthians 15, two passages in 1 Corinthians 15. First, 20 to 22. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, one man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And I would argue, from what we've seen there and other places, that this all is all of his posterity, and this all is all of Christ's posterity. I don't think this passage teaches universalism in the sense that all human beings will be saved. But rather, as all were in Adam died, so all who are in Christ live. If you're in Christ, you will benefit from all that Christ was. If you were in Adam, you fall for all that Adam was. Third text. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, now you have the explicit statement, two Adams. So this is Paul's thinking. One Adam at the beginning, from whom we're all fallen and contaminated, and the last Adam, Christ, the last Adam, Christ in him, a life-giving spirit. However... The spiritual is not first, 
but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so are all those who are earthy. So all humans have their origin in this earthy man, Adam. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly, spiritual. Just as we are, we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So my second point is simply to observe that in, in the mind of Paul, there is one man from whom all of humanity comes. God creates that one man and he falls in sin. We become sinners in him. And his way of redemption is to not have many different ways for many different cultures. But since all of humanity is united in one man, all of the new humanity is going to be united in the one man. There has to be a union in Christ for there to be salvation. So when you think about how can, how can people in the aboriginal forests of Australia be saved? How can people in Africa be saved? And China and Indonesia and America and South America, how can they be saved? Well, the question is, how did they get lost? In one man they got lost. And in one man they will be saved. It's a very strong, strong argument in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 for missions. That there aren't a lot of ways to God. There's one way to God. The second Adam. Rectifying what the first Adam failed to do. And every human being everywhere is wounded by the first Adam. And the only remedy the Bible holds out for that disease is the remedy of the second Adam. Very, very important. Third observation. The Apostle Paul made the common origin of all humans the ground of equality and the end of ethnic arrogance. So I'm working on this idea of the unity of the human race after dealing with the image of God because I don't want us to think there might be pockets of humanoids or whatever who are not in the image of God. Every Every person who is human is of one race, let's use the word race that way for now, and they are in the image of God. Now, how does Paul use that? What's the practical import of that when he goes to Athens, a place where they pride themselves in their ethnic origins? So let's, let's read this. If you were going to go to Athens, go up on the philosophical Mars Hill, have thoughtful people gather around you who spend their time doing nothing but trying to hear new preachers and do intellectual work, what would you say? What would you say? Here's what Paul said. Some of what Paul said. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, so he's attacking their man-made idolatrous forms right off the bat, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and all things. And he made from one man. Now, why is he saying this? 
Out of the blue, in the midst of a sermon, first sermon he gets, he says to these Athenians, God created all humans out of one human. Why do you say that? I mean, good night. Lots of other things to say. Why did he say that? Well, we'll see. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And he determined, he determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. So you Athenians, you think you're special? You think you carved out this little niche at the bottom of Greece? You think you began and, and decided how long you will endure as a civilization? You think you had some unique origin from the soil of Athens over against the barbarians who grew up in another inferior origin? I have something to tell you. You and the barbarians that you hate have one daddy. And God decides where you wound up and why you may look the way you do, talk the way you do, and have the borders that you have. Why do you do this? So that they would seek God, if perchance they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for he, we also are his children. Now here's a quote from F.F. F. Bruce, who's no longer living, but while he was living in the latter half of the 20th century, was one of the most foremost, one of the foremost evangelical New Testament scholars in the English-speaking world. Here's what he wrote about that text. The Athenians prided themselves on being autochthones, sprung from the soil of their native Attica, a claim which simply means that they belong to the earliest wave of Greek immigration into the land. So early that unlike the later arrivals, the Achaeans and the Dorians, they had lost all memory of their immigration. So they assumed they sprung up a special product of humanity from their own soil. So the Greeks, in general, considered themselves superior to non-Greeks, whom they called Barbarians. Against such claims to racial superiority, Paul asserts the unity of all men. So you can see how he's using the doctrine now that I've been trying to develop. He's using it to undermine pride. He's using it to undermine arrogance. He's using it to undermine segregation. We are the Athenians. The rest are barbarians. We're going to live with them, go to school with them, worship with them, have anything to do with them. We are special. Oh, you know what I've done? I've done some, when I was looking on the internet for some things for Sunday's message, I stumbled across some white supremacist stuff that'll turn your face blue. I mean, the kind of stuff that's just vicious, horrible stuff. Against Jews, against blacks, against everything but the Aryans. So that's out there on the internet. You can find it. Don't look for it. You don't want to see it. It is vicious, ugly, crude. But it may help you understand a few feelings 
of why we need to be more sensitive than we are about this whole issue of racial superiority. We, there are pockets in America, and it's a continuum, I suppose, rather than a pocket, that are so Athenian-like, they need to hear this. Against such claims to racial superiority, Paul asserts the unity of all men, the unity of the human race as descended from Adam, is fundamental in Paul's theology. That's what I've been trying to say for the last ten minutes or so. The unity of the human race as descended from Adam is fundamental in Paul's theology. Now let's try to draw out some more implications of that. Here's one. I remember when Noel came to me five years ago, a little more than five, five years and three months ago, and said, uh, Phoebe Dawson just called, and she thinks there's a little girl in Georgia that's for us. <laughs> I'm 50 five years ago. And uh, she wondered if we could do that. And uh, this this 50-year-old walked through 13 days of beyond midlife crisis. <laughs> I had that one, 41, 42, and survived it. Didn't buy a sailboat or a motorcycle or anything. <laughs> um, and she's black, and uh, and I'm 50. <clears throat> when I read to Noel the letter that I wrote to her with about ten reasons why I thought this would be a good idea once the Lord worked on me, um, on the race issue that I knew that when I took this little girl for the first time home to Greenville, South Carolina, would be a crisis for my father and for my stepmother, big time. My bottom line argument was that. The ultimate insignificance of race. Now culturally, I know that can be offensive for minorities. Because they say, easy for you to say. You know, you're the dominant culture and you don't even have to think about race. Everything goes your way. You can be blind to race because you don't think it's an issue. You're white. For us, we live with the consciousness of race all the time. If you say it's insignificant, you, you take from us something. But So I, let me see if I can clarify what I mean. What I mean is that the biological phenomenon of color and shape is ultimately insignificant. I'm not talking about cultural traditions that may be precious, that bring to the world richness. I'm talking that if you have to measure humanity versus animals and black versus white, the former is of infinite significance and the latter is of almost no significance. In other words, comparing those two, human, animal, black, white. Black, white, I mean, if you put it on a, I, I had in my mind a um, a graph, a 
column graph. And uh, if human compared to animal is animal a millimeter off the ground, human's going to be 10 miles high. And if you compare black to white, they're going to be the same height as far as humanity goes. And the difference between the color or the shape or the hair or whatever, those kinds of differences are so small. That's the point here. Now, there are, there are biological reasons for believing that. And I hope to do more with this next time. We won't do it next week because next week is our annual meeting and we'll do, we'll do the business of the church. Very important business. I hope all the members especially and anybody else is invited to come next Wednesday. Uh, so we, and then comes the pastor's conference and then we're back on. I hope to do more with, with this issue to show you where race could have come from between Noah and now. It's really quite explainable. A few observations under this heading, the consequent insignificance of race. The differences between the usual racial classifications of Caucasoid, European or white, Mongoloid, Asian, American Indian, Negroid, black or African, and Australoid, that's what was created when the Aborigines were found, are genetically, genetically insignificant. Insignificant. I'll try to show you why. This is a quote now, again from this book. If one were to take any two people from anywhere in the world, the basic genetic difference between these two people would typically be around 0.2%, even if they come from the same group. But these so-called Racial characteristics that many think are major differences, skin color, eye shape, etc., account for only 6% of that 0.2% variation, which amounts to a mere 0.012% difference genetically. In other words, if you take the DNA molecule and all the program that makes up a human being, just genetically, the things that make us differ are that small and the things we have in common are that many. In other words, the so-called racial differences are absolutely trivial. That's a quote. Overall, there is more variation within any group than there is between one group and another. If a white person for example, we're looking for a tissue match for an organ transplant, for instance. The best match may come from a black person and vice versa. I think that there's a, there's a strange mindset uh, that, that is racist, deeply racist, that the differences between color and a few other features say, eyes for Asians, nose or hair for blacks, those are really signs of deep and wide and far-reaching differences in humanity, which is simply scientifically absolutely not the case. And that the differences that can 
be there between any one group, black or yellow or whatever, are typically just as great or more as the differences in the genetic makeup between representatives of two different groups. I just think that's a very liberating thing to think about. Very important to think about. That we not subconsciously conclude, okay, yellow skin, always smart in mathematics. Or something like that. And it was whatever. Dealing with varying groups justly follows from a common origin of creatures of the same God. I think we can wrap this up. Our time is is almost gone. Uh, but I only have... Uh, I think this is the end. Yeah, this is my last overhead. So here's the last thing I want to say. Dealing with varying groups justly, black and white, especially in America and other racial groupings here and elsewhere, more urgent, perhaps different places. Dealing with varying groups justly follows from a common origin as creatures of the same God and a unified race under the same God. So two texts to show that. This is the text I'm going to be preaching on this Sunday. Because, it, I chose it because it links race and embryo. I'm going to talk about pro-life Sunday, but I'm going, to, I'm going to move from last Sunday's message into next Sunday's message with the link of this, this passage. Here's what Job says. I, if I have despised the claim of my male and female slaves, and I'll say something about slavery, not much. I'm going to deal with that separately on a Wednesday night. The problem of slavery in the Bible, the problem of slavery in America and in the world today, in Sudan. What do we say about that? But here's Job protesting that while in that culture he did have slaves, he has not hardened his heart against any of their needs or any of their desires. What's his argument? If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? In other words, God's going to hold me accountable for that. So I think all the commentaries I looked at on this today, three of them said, this is a stunning ethical statement from that culture, that he would talk like this about his slaves. In other words, what, what you find in the Bible, and I'm going to get ahead of myself here and because I want to say so much about the slavery issue, what you find in the Bible is a progressive sanctification on this issue and the seeds are being sown for the dissolution of this institution all the way along and this is one of them we have more elsewhere even though it wasn't exploded immediately in the history of redemption the seeds of the explosion were being planted over and over again and here you have this man in that culture saying if I ever failed to register a, a, a proper and just and compassionate response to a complaint of one of my servants, what then could I do when God arises? God's going to advocate for them big time. And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Now, here's the foundation of that tremendous sense of fear of God, that God was going to come and, and call him to account if he ever abused one of his slaves or servants. Here's what he says, verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb, me, Joe, Mr. in charge, make him? And the same one fashion us in the womb? 
It's the unity of the origin of humanity, both in history and the womb, that causes Job to tremble at the thought of mistreating one of his servants. And then finally, Proverbs 22, 2. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. So, in our culture, in our church especially, if the rich have demeaning attitudes to the poor, or the poor have arrogant and cynical attitudes towards the rich, they need to remind themselves of many things. And we'll talk about the redemptive things, but this is a created thing. The Lord is the maker of them all, which creates a common bond. So even, I hope before we're done, we, we get, we will get to, God willing, the, the massive and beautiful things that happen to us in Christ, Neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. In Christ, I haven't even gotten there yet. I'm talking about who we are by our common rootage in one humanity and what the Bible makes of that in terms of undermining ethnic arrogance and pulling people together in a common heart bond of compassion and justice. Well, I need to let you go. I'll hang out here at the front afterwards if you want to talk about any of this. But let's pray and then you can go enjoy your fellowship around some food. Father in heaven, we want so much to feel the right proportion of what it is to be human in your image and united in one humanity, not several humanities involving some in Africa and some in America and some in China, some in Europe, but one humanity rooted in a divine special act of creation of Adam falling in our sin in him, redeemed in the second Adam, and therefore both at the creation level and the redemption level, having warrant to be just to each other, compassionate to each other, respectful of each other, and welcoming to each other in our common humanity, which is so important and blessed created in your image. Lord, build these things into our lives now and make us instruments of this truth in our church and in our city and our nation in the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.